it's really funny because storytelling was not something that was taught and learned over home. It was called having a conversation. My father called it holding forth. Daddy was the best storyteller I've ever heard in my life. And if you tried to interrupt him when he was holding forth, he'd say, nope, I'm holding forth right now. And if you've got anything interesting to say, you can hold forth here in a minute. And he'd go on with his story. That is 2013 National Heritage Fellow, Sheila K. Adams. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Sheila K. Adams is a renowned musician, singer, and storyteller. I visited her in her home in Madison County soon after she found out she received the National Heritage Award. This is the second of a two-part interview. Last week, we focused on her music. This week, we turn our attention to her storytelling. Although performing since she was a teenager, Sheila didn't add storytelling to her onstage repertoire until later in life. But once she did, she found great acclaim for those tales she told about the good people of Sodom, North Carolina, whose business she knew as well as her own. She was, after all, related to most of them. She had 72 first cousins. Sheila's told her stories at festivals throughout the country, including the Smithsonian Folklife Festival held during the Bicentennial and the acclaimed International Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. But Sheila was a little shy in the beginning about telling stories on stage, because as we just heard, storytelling was just a way of life for her and her kin. I started uh, performing on stage, telling stories, and had no idea that I was a storyteller. I got uh, recommended for the big national storytelling festival over in Jonesboro, Tennessee. I had no idea what I was doing when I went over there. Not a clue what I was doing. And David Holt told me, just go out there and be yourself. That's all you have to do. Just go out there and talk to them and tell them about Sodom. And I was scared to death. But I learned how to tell a story. I can tell you the exact date. It was the first Friday in October in 1997 because at Jonesboro, during a full-hour set, they will pair you with somebody, another storyteller. And the first person that I got paired with at 11 o'clock in the morning on that Friday, 1997, was a man by the name of Donald Davis who is recognized as Mr. Storyteller in this country, and he went on before I did. So I had to figure out a story pretty quick because he was fabulously amazing at telling stories, and he sounded a lot like my daddy. And so I thought, well, all I know to do is go out there and just tell some daddy stories, and that's what I did. What story did you tell? I told one that actually me and daddy were a part of that was when snake handlers came to Sodom and I got Inez Chandler to go with me to the snake handling because I knew they'd be stories to tell for years. And that was in 1970, thereabouts, when I graduated from high school. And I'm telling it in 2013, the same story. We went up to the Low Gap Church House, and now Inez was a character. She didn't have a filter between her brain and mouth. Now, this is about a 30-minute story, but I'll shorten it for you. She had a way of putting herself into and then you know, extracting herself out of a car. And uh, 
there's an old saying over Sodom now, Inez in it into and out of a car. Because she would back up and flop down, and then she had all this double-knit polyester on because she was a big and stout woman. That's how she referred to herself. And so we went up to the snake handling, and Inez was suspicious from the get-go. She said, you know, I don't know that we aren't to do this. Either it's just it's going to be a big gom up there, a big mess, or else nobody's going to show up, and we're just going to all look like fools. But I finally talked her into going, and we did. Well, they they came... The, the snake handlers did. There were six of them, three men and three women, and two of the men was carrying boxes. And they set one box on either side of this little pulpit at the front of the church. Well, somebody in the church house, and it was smack pack full of people. I bet you there was 450 people up there at this little one-room church, you know, on the side of Lonesome Mountain. They hadn't all come for the right reasons, and this woman stood up. You know, we'd gone to see the show. I mean, that's what everybody had that's what Inez said later, you know, while we was minding our own business up there just to see the show. Well, somebody that's a member of that church got up and is just giving us down the road, you know, for not coming for the right reasons. Well, she pointed her finger right before she sat down and said, and now my opinion of all of this business is yons ought not to do this. And she had in the morning got settled on that bench to where that preacher jumped straight up off the floor off both feet. And when he hit the floor, he was running back and forth going, she, ma, ma, ma. And Inez said, yes, sir, they'll get them snakes out now for sure. He's done talking in tongues. And that went on for a while. And then all of a sudden he charged one of them boxes and flipped up the lid on it. And he reached down in there, disappeared up to his elbows, and brought out one of the biggest diamondback rattlesnakes that I've ever seen in my life in full sing. And was carrying it in his hands around and amongst the congregation. And Inez, I don't know what she expected, but now remember there was no filter between her brain and mouth. She, her hind end come up off that bench and she turned around and faced the congregation and it was just packed and screamed at the top of her lungs, hell, them real snakes. I don't know what she thought was coming out of them boxes, but when she, we, when she done that, the whole congregation blew up and, you know, headed for the door, which opened to the inside. And they'd close the door when they came in. So there's all these people up against the wall. And I followed Inez Chandler out of that church house, her with her pocketbook raised up like a wedge. And she beat people in the head with that big old ball of a clasp of a thing on that pocketbook. And we were one of the first ones out onto the porch. But I'll tell you one thing. When we got down to the car, there was none of this Inez in it into the car. She was slick as a ribbon in that car with the door shut and locked before I could get from the back bumper up to the driver's side. And uh, she told me after I got her to the house, don't you never come down here and try to take me off to no religious goings on because I done see that me and you don't jee-haw when it comes to that religion business. But that was, that was what I told when I had to follow Donald Davis. And it was just that, you know, recollection and and memory and having this kind of weird something going on up there for detail in my brain that I was just thinking that it's the detail yeah I mean it's a crazy story to begin with and what's wonderful about your stories is the sense as a listener that I completely believe them 
Right. I absolutely believe them. And the detail just adds so much to it. So you're talking, and I'm seeing this whole thing play out in my mind. Oh, yeah, and I left out most of that story because I can remember hanging on the wall in the Low Gap Church House. It was one of those little wooden plaque-like things where you've put in how many people were there the Sunday before and how much collection they had taken up and all this, that, and the other. And they'd taken up a dollar and 17 cents and there's 23 people there the Sunday before. And I bet you there's over 400. I know there were over 400 people there that night. So, you know, she had some right to get up and complain a little bit, but that preacher didn't, he didn't appreciate it too much. And so, so see, in my mind, I can see all of that just like it's unfolding in my mind, just like a love song. You know, like I learned the love song, that attention to detail. And, and I embellish a little bit, but not a whole lot. You know, mm-hmm. pretty much it's a true story. But it's just I was blessed with this kind of funky memory. They're memorable stories. They, well, they are memorable stories, and I think that's part of it, too. I love the story of... Oh, Little Betty and Amos. I mean Little Betty, I'm sorry. Little Betty and Amos. He was a, he was a great big feller. He's about 6'6 six, six and weighed probably 400 pounds. And uh, he uh, got real sick one winter and got double pneumonia. And Daddy used to say, Amos Lundy is older than God's dog. And that's why he passed on. So, he, you know, he was an older feller, and, and he did pass up in the spring. And back then they had the setting-ups, as they called them, at home. So the undertaker would come and get the body and take them off down to... Uh, Marshall and fix them up in whatever clothes you sent with them. Well, Daddy used to say all them Baptists over home, and he would tick off all the Baptists, you know, the free will and the hard shell and the regular and the southern and the primitive and progressive primitive and foot washing and the holy rolling, and then he'd get to the buzzard Baptist, and I would always bust out laughing because I'd say, what's a buzzard Baptist, Daddy? He'd say, they're Baptists that only go to church when there's a funeral, so I call them the buzzard Baptists. <laughs> and he said every time they cut down a tree, they'd have a big swarm in some Baptist church over home, and they'd go down the road, you know, wherever they cut that tree down and build a new hive, like bees are swarming off. So they'd had a big swarm, and uh, the people that were left in the church, and I think it was the regular Baptists that Amos and Little Betty belonged to, but they had had a swarm, and part of them had gone off down the road and built them a church. So the ones in, left in the church took up money and bought Amos a, a suit. He had never owned a suit all his life, you know. I'd only seen him in overalls. And then the, the swarm down the road were not going to be outdone. So they bought Amos another suit, a different color. So there was Amos at his death with two suits. Bless his heart, he never owned one his whole life. So little Betty decided on the green suit because he is green-eyed. Now, I don't know why she would think, that's kind of odd if you study on it, that she's going to pick out a suit to match his eyes after he had passed. So anyhow, she, they brought him back to the house, Undertaker did, and uh, set him up there in the front room for the setting up. That was the wake, and people would bring food and they'd have three or four tables set up, and the weight of the food would just have them tables swagging. You know, so she was getting ready, preparing for the setting up, and the first person to show up was Vine, and that was little Betty's sister. Well, they got into a conversation about how he didn't look natural. His hair weren't parted on the right side, so they fixed that. Then little Betty got to looking at him and said, well, you know, I never 
Never thought about the fact that his eyes would be closed. That green suit don't look near as good as that blue-suited look, so I believe we ought to change his clothes. Now, he was in his coffin up on those stands, and somehow them two women wallered him out of that coffin, got him jerked up onto the side, the lip of it, and it's sort of narrow up there. And so Amos, you know, gravity works, and he fell on into the floor, and then they changed his clothes, and then they couldn't pick him up, get him back over in the coffin. So they came, little Betty came up the house to get Daddy. Now, Daddy is watching a baseball game, totally engrossed in the ball game. He loved baseball, Lord, Lord. A Yankee fan. He was a Yankees fan right up until Atlanta came along, but he was a Yankees fan. And uh, I was about eight years old sitting on the couch watching Daddy because he's a lot more fun to watch and listen to than uh, Howard Cosell or whoever it was on the radio, whatever announcer was announcing that day. And all of a sudden the door swings open and there's little Betty hanging onto the doorknob, breathing hard because she's walked up the hill from down to her house. She said, Irvin, you've got to come down to the house and help us get Amos back in his coffin. And I'll never ever forget the look on daddy's face it was just like this huh and he looked over at her and said well where in the world is he little betty i thought he is dead (laughs) and little betty said irving you fool he is dead me and vine got him out in the coffin to change his clothes and we can't pick him up off on the floor to get him back over in his coffin he's laying there on the floor and people will talk and daddy said little betty damn if you didn't worry him to death the whole time he's living and you're still after him so, but anyhow, Daddy being the kind of person he was, he, he stood up. And then they, Daddy was a little bit, had a little devil man in him. But so did I. At eight years old, I stood up. I wasn't going to miss that. I mean, have Amos laying out on the floor that way down there? I had to tell all, you know, 72 of my first cousins, you know. So down the road we went, and we got down there, and sure enough, there laid Amos on the floor, vying to keep in watch. I don't know where she thought he was going, but she was watching him, you know, just like he might ooch off at any minute. And Daddy and little Betty and Vine couldn't pick him up. Daddy finally went down to the store where there's a crowd of men watching the ball game. Had ganged up down there to watch the ball game. And uh, he come back with a car load of men. And that was back when they had running boards on the side of cars. And there's men standing on the running board. There's three or four on the running boards. And... They all came in the house, and between all of the men and Vine and little Betty, they kind of picked him, scooped him up off the floor and pressed him back down in his coffin, you know, shuffled over there and pressed him back down in it. And then they stepped back and started talking about the ball game, just like nothing had happened. Left me and Vine and little Betty standing there looking over in the coffin, and I'll be dipped if little Betty didn't straighten his tie up, you know, smooth his hair down, and then looked at Vine, her sister, and said, well, now that I look at him laying there, I believe I did like him better than that other suit. But now they left him in the blue, and they didn't change his clothes anymore. I thought everybody lived that same way. I thought that same stuff happened to everybody. And I found out when I went to Mars Hill College that I was wrong. Not everybody did grow up like I did in Sodom. It, It was a town of characters. It absolutely was. And... It was just this little mountain community that everybody knew that everybody's business and nobody cared that everybody knew. How many brothers and sisters did you have? I had one sister coming from families like my mother had a big family, daddy had a big family, and they had two daughters, and that was it. But now, 
with daddy's brothers and two sisters and mama's brother and her sisters, I had 72 first cousins at one time because they came from such big families. Now you tour. I do. You've lived in Madison County all your life. You have the best of both worlds, don't you? Yes, I do. You live in Madison County and you also travel fairly extensively. I do. How is it translating the stories outside of Madison County for you? Well, I was just up in Lowell, Massachusetts at the Lowell Folk Festival. And they loved the stories. They loved the songs. I had a, people would come up to me when I, once I'd finished a performance. You know, they'd be waiting backstage or else they'd walk up to me at some point during the festival, having seen me, you know, out in the crowd. And they'd say, I just loved your stories. It reminded me so much of the way my grandmother said things were or the way I remember my grandmother when I would visit with her out in, you know, rural uh, Massachusetts. See, I've always thought of Massachusetts as being one big Boston, but that's not true. Everywhere we go in this world, I've performed in upstate New York, even over in Scotland and England and Ireland, and it's still I've had men, older men, come up to me after a concert with tears in their eyes and saying, I had not thought of a wood cook stove since my grandmother made porridge for me on a wood cook stove in 1928 or whatever. So I think it's just finding that human connection that all of us are a part of. We are all connected, you know, so we all have the same wants and needs and desires for ourselves and for our children, our grandchildren, and if you go back far enough, we all come from a rural background. Every single one of us do. You might have to go back a little farther for some folks, but there's just something about that that touches a chord with everybody that I get up in front of, whether it's the stories, the songs, banjo tunes. You know, it all seems like it's just a really good way of connecting with people, even of different backgrounds, different religions, different ethnic backgrounds. It doesn't matter because we all want the same thing. I'm just so thankful that I was blessed with a family that held all those traditions and loving hands and passed them on to me. I really am. I am so grateful. And you're also very committed to passing them on to the next generation. Absolutely, I am. Some of the people I learned from had doubts as to whether it would last into the 21st century, and wherever they are, I hope they know that it's, that it's lasted. It's, it's lasted well into the 21st century, and I have a bunch of young people, Elizabeth LaPrell, uh, Sam Gleaves, that are two of the best singers of these old love songs I've ever heard, and both of them, I think Elizabeth's in her 20s, and Sam might be 20 by now. So uh, Josh Goforth, a cousin of mine, who is out there playing music in the big world and, and telling stories and singing the old love songs. So they're going right on through the generations. And, uh, and now my grandson Ezra, who's seven years old, can already sing three love songs. Wow. So I'm, I'm committed to getting them right on up into the 22nd century, you know. You know, it's interesting. There really has been such a revitalization I think, for traditional music, traditional stories. People, I think, are appreciating what a wonderfully rich 
and uniquely American art form this is and not wanting to let it go. And not even from a, we need to preserve this because it's an art form, but just plain loving it. Absolutely. It's like hearing my granny and her sister sing those old songs took me back to a time when things were simple. As granny used to say, don't get that confused with easy. They were simpler times. But it was like each time they would sing one of those songs was the first time they had sung that song. I have seen Burzil crank up and cry on the same verse in the same song at least 30 times. She would start crying at that particular verse, and I, first time it happened, I said, Little Granny, are you all right? And she said, I'm all right. It just breaks my heart what that poor little old girl let herself into whenever she done that deed that she did. Every time she would crank up and cry. So those songs meant a lot to them. They were a part of their everyday life, and they were in context. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in a time in the 50s and 60s when that was still true because uh, this little community of Sodom was still extremely rural. Everybody had cows and nobody had telephones till I was 15. So things hadn't changed very much. I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, if you don't mind playing another song for me. I don't mind a bit. if you knew this or not, but my husband took his life on March 7th in 2009. Yeah, I had heard he had been ill. That must have been very hard. It destroyed my world, Joe. I couldn't even play banjo. Because he was not just my companion and partner in life and the love of my life and best friend and lovers and all and husband. He was also my business partner. He was a great musician. But he developed Lyme's disease and uh, didn't take all of his antibiotics. And so he created a super strain of that spirochete which went straight to his brain. And Jim lost his mind for the last 18 months of our marriage and I didn't have a clue what was going on. He had gone out to the shop out there and had taken his own life, shot himself. And my world fell apart right there. Everything about my world just went, like, it was just like this big bubble of glass that blew up and just shattered went rolling off down over the hill out there. And it took me four years to decide that I was going to be able to live. And part of what happened to me was being awarded the NEA award. That gave me something that I really needed other than just winning this award. Of course, I understand that completely. I mean, this is some kind of story. This time a year ago, I would have been in no shape to have done this. But the timing was just perfect. And that's why that I, I have such a grateful attitude about this NEA award. Because it is like it came at the 
perfect time. It came at a time when I was healed enough from that trauma to be able to accept it because I had just made the decision to move on, to try to move on with my life in literally February. And then the news came in that I'd gotten the NEA award in April. That is timing. Is that not timing? Yeah, that's amazing. It is amazing. And I don't know how many recipients of the NEA award have ever said, this award validated my existence on this planet. And really, truly, and honestly, from their heart, meant it. But for me, this award validated my existence. And it also validated that decision you made in February. Absolutely. But isn't it funny how I had to make that decision before this would come? Yeah, before it makes that would perfect come. sense. Though, yes, it does. It? Yes, it does to me too. I had just decided that the only thing that went to the grave with Jim were the dreams I had with Jim. I had finally made that distinction that it wasn't 100% of my life, it was just 100% of the dreams with Jim that went into the grave. Then that's when I started to fight for my life, to get my life back. You know, and I always get real emotional about it because then in April, you know, I got this call from Barry that changed my whole world. I mean, it put me right back, right back there where I needed to be, even though I couldn't tell anybody. You know, it was still the best day, two best days of my life after I talked to Barry and found out that I'd received this award because it has been a life-changing experience for me. So that's what's in my heart. I have, I don't think I've ever experienced this much joy. And this is actually a song that came from uh, the Civil War era that probably some young man from North Carolina wrote when he was going off to war. And uh, my, my late husband Jim used to sing this song. It's called I'm Going Back to North Carolina.
welcome. And it's beautiful to hear it sitting on the porch with the rain. With and the rain in the background, yep. At this beautiful, beautiful mountain. Yep. It's the prettiest place in the world, and I've been all over the world doing this. Sheila, thank you so much. Truly. You are so much and many, so much welcome. And many congratulations, thank truly. You very much, I was Joe. very, very happy to see your name on that list and I am even happier now. Yep. Well thank you very much, Joe. Sure. It's been thank my you. pleasure. Thank you. That was 2013 National Heritage Fellow, Sheila K. Adams. You can hear Sheila perform live at the National Heritage Fellowships concert which takes place here in Washington, D.C., in the Lisner Auditorium on Friday, September 27th at 8 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. You can find tickets at lisner.org. And if you can't make it to Washington, we're live streaming the concert on our website at arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. You heard excerpts from St. Anne's Reel, and I'm Going Back to North Carolina, both performed by Sheila K. Adams. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. To find out how Artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>